don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 5. Yeah. Episode 5, we've come a long way, baby. Yeah, and up uh, in the Star Wars territory there. Yeah, and today we're talking about Captain Fantastic from 2016, directed by Matt Ross, who has made a, f- a handful of kind of smaller films. Really? Um, I didn't know that. According to Wikipedia, I'd never heard of any of them. Hmm. Um, but you probably know him more as an actor in things like Silicon Valley, playing Gavin Bellison. And... He was also in Big Love, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah he was in Big Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, so he, he's been around in a few things, but this is kind of, this is easily his biggest film, um, because, you know, it has Viggo Mortensen and, um, a handful of other well-known actors and some young up-and-comers. And what's interesting about this film, as far as the scope of the podcast is concerned, is that it's not on its surface directly about climate change in the kind of way that a first reformed or an interstellar would be or a mother um the three movies we've talked about but what it's talking about or what we're talking about in reference to the film is more of its attitude toward nature and uh toward society and how one can live or not live ethically i guess yeah any commentary on environmentalism in Captain Fantastic is implicit whereas in First Reformed Interstellar and Mother it's pretty explicit um, yeah those films are sort of in some way about about climate change and it, uh, Captain Fantastic just sort of implies things about climate change or, or implies things about human beings relationship to nature yeah, and it doesn't directly address it in any kind of way, but it addresses a lot of things that go hand in hand with it, like right. and, consumption. And you, or and you can't make yeah, you can't make a movie in what is it twenty sixteen yeah. that this came out uh, that's about you know living in accordance with nature and not have some implications about climate change. Absolutely, that's our story. We're sticking to it. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so we're totally justified in talking about this movie that we like. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and I do like it. I think it's an entertaining movie. Watching it on the second time, I came across more things that kind of left me questioning than maybe I did the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, me too. So I'm sure we'll get to plenty of those scenes. Um, so, yeah, the, the basic sort of quick overview of this is it's uh, a family. If, if you look at it, it's the most basic level. A family living in the woods away from all of the trappings of society uh, self-sufficient, um, all these high-minded ideals about education, physical fitness, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Viggo Mortensen is the father. He's kind of the ringleader of all this, this whole operation, sort of like a drill sergeant slash Socrates. Um, yeah, like the loving, the loving drill sergeant. Yeah. Alternate title for this movie. So uh, it's him and his, I forgot how many kids, six, six kids, him and his six children. Yeah. Uh, with various names that him and his wife has have created for them because they're unique, like Bodovan and Relian and Relian and all these Naj, yeah, all these like Star Trek names that his kids have. Um, 
And there's, central, a, there's a Star Trek reference in there somewhere. Yeah, right? yeah. When he's Dr. Uh, Spock. when Bodovan is talking to the the girl. Um, but the central conceit is that the mother is missing, so it sort of has that Disney connection of the where's the mom and the interstellar connection of yeah where, where the, are the moms <laughs> no no moms in the future yeah um, so the wife is missing we come to find out that she is bipolar right or schizophrenic bipolar I've already forgotten she so she has bipolar disorder yeah. and she has been hospitalized because she wasn't receiving the treatment she needed in the middle of nowhere in the woods imagine that <laughs> and so. Uh, and that's where we are, and then, you know, it comes out that she's killed herself, and now the mission is to attend her funeral. So they have to travel out into the world. Yeah, in movies. a weird way, it's a road trip movie. Yeah, uh, which is a strange thing for, uh, you know, this family that's so environmentally conscious, and they're driving this giant mm-hmm. bus <laughs> named right. Steve across, or at least down the country. Right. It seems you never really learn... Where they are geographically, but it seems like it's the Pacific Northwest. It's the Pacific Northwest. It's implied. I can't even remember exactly how that's implied, but it's either Oregon or Washington. Yeah, I can't remember how we know that, but we do. Yeah, it just seems right. But well, when they drive, they they're driving for so long, right? Because if you're gonna make a road trip movie, you might as well make it a substantial trip, and they're going to Arizona. Right. Um. So, going from the lush forest where they live out with their high-minded ideals to the desert just like the epitome of the suburbs though because yes it's it's interesting Uh, i noticed there's a a very interesting cut uh before they make it to the suburbs uh um where they meet their where the family meets their i guess it's aunt and uncle played by Catherine hahn and steve zahn hahn and zahn and zahn the hahn and zahn team um no, there's a, a, a quick cut between them driving through the desert and then it cuts to the neighborhood in which Han and Zahn live and it's very lush and green. And it's like, on some level, I think we're supposed to notice the artif- what, what must be the artificiality of this suburban neighborhood. Oh yeah, and then later on when they are at their, their grandparents' home, the, the parents of their mother who has died, uh, they live on a golf course. Yes, <laughs> in the middle of a desert, which mm-hmm. tells you all you need to know um, about the kind of people they are in their giant McMansion with their projection screen TV right. and all and, that stuff. And the character—I I don't know how to say this actor's very famous actor's name—Frank Langella, Langella, something Lang, like that. Langella. I don't know. Played uh, Nixon and Frost Nixon. Right. Uh, uh, a good little moment of his uh, sort of characterization. Um, comes when Ben, Captain Fantastic, Viggo Mortensen says, uh, mentions Noam Chomsky. You know, they celebrate Noam Chomsky Day. And the grandfather, Frank Langella, says, I don't even know who that is. And you just <laughs> you just know exactly who his character is when he says, like, he's never heard this name. And this is the, this is their Santa Claus, essentially. Yeah, and there's also the scene where he shoots the bow and arrow kind of at Ben, but, you know, misses him on purpose to scare him or whatever. And the fact that the one thing that he's really into about the natural world is hunting. Right. He's playing, he has the hunting video game. Yeah. He's a grandfather. Yeah. And he has a hunting video game in his home. Uh, But you also see real shotguns sort of lined up on the wall. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so so his orientation to nature is that of complete fucking dominance. Absolutely. And, or just sort of illogical, uh, sp- you know, sport. Yeah. And so we open on a hunting scene in the film, so I guess we could just talk about that for a minute because it, it stuck out to me on the second viewing more so than the first, I think. Um, because you have this really kind of unusual hunting scene, which is Bo... Uh, the oldest son, um, played by George, George McKay, McKay. Yeah. Um, who he's kind of, it's kind of like Predator. He's covered in the mud and mm-hmm. he's sort of laying in wait. And then when the deer gets close, he jumps on it and like slits its throat. And this very kind of primordial hunting scene. It's, um, it's weird how many parallels there are to the opening of this movie with the weird opening we talked about in Interstellar of the, the, the parent leading this sort of weird hunting oh, for the drone and yeah. when they're when they're tracing you know tracking the drone and then they take out the the computer the same way uh Bodovin removes the or or ben i guess removes the some some yeah, part it's like the heart or the liver or the heart. it looks more like the liver i think and then he eats it so yeah there's a there's a weird parallel there i don't really have anything to do with that but <laughs> but yeah i think it's definitely there and um you know, Ben telling his son, you know, today the boy is dead and the man is taking his place or whatever, and he hands him the, the liver or whatever mm-hmm. it is to eat. Um, and it's this weird thing where the hunting that they're doing in that moment, even though it's given this great, you know, symbolism, this great sort of weighty significance for the family and for, you know, Bodovin becoming a man or whatever, it's really, when you think about it, it's no more necessary than the hunting the grandfather is doing. If you think, I mean, they're living in the woods, right? But it's not well, like they can't. I, I think it's also because we, we see later, uh, just moments later, them carrying the deer mm-hmm. uh, back to you know base camp or whatever. So I think it's implied that this is the source of their meat. Yeah. Um, whereas you, uh, the hunting that's associated with the grandfather character seems to be recreation. Oh yeah. You know, and it's uh, done. You know with a bow from a distance, which is still like more honorable than like from a tree stand with a gun. Or right. Whatever. But, but, but it's also, uh, I think that whole angle is problematized in the scene, uh, where they stop and the, the daughter sort of refuses to shoot, shoot, the, shoot the sheep. Yeah. And he just says, well, you're hungry. Someone should have shot the fucking sheep. Um, so, so it, to me, it seems like Ross sort of saying that, um, this issue, the issue of sort of veganism, um, exists within this larger counterculture. It's not like, it's not like there's, you know, meat eating is is part of the mainstream culture, and veganism is part of the counterculture. It's like this issue is contained within the counterculture. Like you have people as radical as Ben, the father, uh, who are clear carnivores and, and his daughter who's in the same world as he is, uh, sort of struggling with, with the issue. Yeah. And it sort of gets to this whole movement of only kill what you eat, Mm -hmm. which in, in our current culture is a more kind of masculine movement. You have like Joe Rogan, saying I only only eat what I kill and then he shoots an elk with a carbon fiber bow out of a helicopter or some shit and mm-hmm. 
and puts it in his freezer for six months. <laughs> um, but here, I think it, it just stuck out to me of how sort of constructed and sort of for like so much of what they do, I felt like is for the benefit of only them kind of. It's very sort of insular. And we can talk more about that because, like, the music scene, for instance, sort of entertaining themselves. Mm. Um, but th- what I really want to talk about with the opening sequence is when we get to the title card because it's, it's after he's, uh, you know, given them the heart or whatever it was and he eats it. And he's uh, like presenting, presenting him, presenting Bo to Bo. Yeah, I give and, you, and he, he I holds give you his yourself. hands out in this kind of like messianic fashion, and it's just like, ah, and then Captain Fantastic pops well, up right there. Well, and it's it's perfect because that phrase, if I'm not mistaken, I haven't urban dictionaryed it or anything, but that phrase is meant ironically, and not necessarily. I mean, I think it is in the film, but apart from this film, the phrase Captain Fantastic is meant sarcastically or ironically. People use it to to talk about someone who thinks they're awesome. You know, it's like, oh, look, Captain fucking fantastic, you know. <laughs> uh, and so and so I think some of that irony is is meant, is, is intentional in the title. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting sort of formal choice to have the, you know, the, the title card kind of integrated into the world of the movie it, because the the movie's the movie's very formal in terms of there's no attention uh, it, Ross doesn't seem to want to call attention to the film as a film in any other moment than that moment you know everything else is you're you are invested in the characters and and the reality of of the world he creates it's not like oh let's meditate on the art of filmmaking <laughs> yeah. you know he doesn't really get meta at all no, no um and and just that the pose that that ben has of that sort of like i said it's sort of messianic kind of cult leader-esque yeah and it really fits for his whole kind of demeanor about this project that he's doing because there's this feeling i kept having of you don't have six children unless you somehow think they're important to the world somehow, right? Um, sort of like the the quiverful movement of God wants you to have fifty million kids or whatever. Um, so or the Catholic Church or the Catholic <laughs> Church. And he mentions, or in uh, toward the end, a letter that his wife wrote him, uh, where she says, "Our children will be philosopher kings," that sort of thing. So they have this sort of chip on their shoulder about like our kids are so smart and so capable and. Yeah, it's interesting to me that that moment where the uh, mother-in-law gives him the letter that yeah. his late wife wrote, and it kind and of she, absolves him of well, everything. Well, but but there's some ambivalence there, I think, because she says it's one of two letters, and of course we know she's bipolar, and I think we we've got. It, 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 to me, it seems like Ross is acknowledging that this letter is is kind of overblown and this is this is the manic yeah this is the manic version and, and the the mother-in-law character is is not going to let him read the depressive so and she even the version. in the letter she says burn my other letter exactly um, and, and and there's a sort of 
uh, acknowledged repression there, you know, or, or suppression of, you know, of the more negative aspect of, of her perspective and the truth may or may not be somewhere in the middle, you know, between that sort of elated, our children will be philosopher kings. We've created a paradise out of Plato's Republic and, and all these things. And, and, oh, Ben wants to kill me. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine what the other letter says. Ben wants to kill me. I don't care about him. You know, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever it says. He won't let me leave. Right, that right. Sort of uh, yeah, so, so the, the truth is maybe somewhere in between that. Uh, and it's a sort, to me, it's a sort of sad moment of watching Ben and his mother-in-law sort of choose this happier narrative while they have the knowledge that there is another version of this out there. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and it's it sort of... The only time we see Ben kind of reckon with everything is when the kids... At the end, the kids hide away in the bottom of the bus and Raylian says... I don't hate you. I just wish you would have helped mom more. And he says, me too. Yeah. And it's, you know, I just thought of this. The whole movie is kind of about telling the truth. In some ways, because especially at the the dinner scene when they're, the argument is basically over what should you tell children. Right. And, and so, and so Captain Fantastic has this real clear ethic of, I will tell the truth no matter what. And he even says that to to Bo right at the end as he's leaving for Namibia. He says, always tell the truth. You know, that's sort of the final piece of wisdom he leaves with. But in that moment with the mother-in-law, he chooses what he knows is... It's not that he knows it's not the truth. He knows it's not the whole truth. Yeah. Because um, the whole truth is, you know, what he tells his children earlier... <clears throat> or he, you know, he has this way of always just giving them the blunt truth and explaining kind of the facts of it. He says, "Well, your your mother doesn't have enough; her brain can't produce enough of the neurotransmitter serotonin, right. so she had to go get treatment." Right. Well, tell, I saw this movie in the theater uh, at the Belcourt, and when I I started taking it very seriously at that at that uh, early scene after he find, finds out that his wife has killed herself and he comes back into base camp and he gets very somber <clears throat> and he just looks his kids in the eye and says last night mommy killed herself and and the fact that it's written with the word mommy yeah it, it's like i'm going to i'm going to tell it to you in the most truthful way the person who you identify as mommy the most like subjective and, and sentimental version of it which is maybe you know the truest version of it uh, has has killed herself she finally did it yeah, there, his next line is she finally did it yeah and, and that says a lot that one line says a lot about you know that character and the, the, the family's understanding the family's the understanding of who she is yeah um but yeah, I remember reading an interview when this movie came out with Ross that said his sort of uh, spark for writing this movie was um, he was about to, or his, his wife was about to have their first kid. And 
he was sort of wrestling with this these issues of how to bring up a kid and what do you tell them and uh, and it's interesting you know we were trying to justify this movie for for climate change this is uh, essentially the beginning of first reform too is how do you bring yeah. a how do you bring a how do you responsibly bring a child into into the world currently yeah um, and Ben and his wife thought this was the the most responsible way of doing it um, which is interesting yeah yeah because we it's just kind of it, the the problem I had with the movie initially and also on the second time around or not the problem with the movie but with the the people in the movie I guess is this kind of withdrawal from society that they're practicing and so kind of saying to live life to its truest in their summation is to live it outside of society kind of cloister yourself from everything and get away from stuff and it for to me it for some reason it made me think of uh survivalists in our current time and in uh, Wilderness in the American Mind which we're going to go back to again back to the well uh, later he talks about um, after the atomic bombs were detonated so throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s uh, with the threat of nuclear war people were building bomb shelters in their houses and saying well you know if the big one hits we're fine right (laughs) but they're, they're kind of building this bomb shelter um, while the environment is becoming increasingly more polluted and, you know, uh, global warming is accelerating, all this kind of stuff. So they're ignoring the big picture for this kind of one shot at survival. Domestic safety. Yeah. yeah and that's the same thing you kind of have today with people stockpiling guns and filtered water and preparing a bug out bag and all this crazy stuff while all this other stuff is, you know, turning to shit around us. Um, and it's not the same thing here, but... It does have that kind of feel to me of going out in the woods, living our truest life or whatever, getting to be one with nature, but at the same time, they're not, they're not really contributing positively or negatively to society. So in my summation, that means it's a negative contribution. You know, you're not working toward the positive, therefore you're just kind of, you're not even canceling out. You're kind of, because you're aware of these issues um, you may even be aware of ways that you could work to help them. Instead, you're out in the woods sprinting up a hill or reading a book or whatever. Right. Well, man, I, I feel like you're raising a huge philosophical question of like, do we need this big sort of capital C cause in order to make our lives meaningful? Or is it meaningful in and of itself, you know, like, can I be satisfied and, and feel like I'm living a meaningful life in the woods reading the elegant universe or whatever? Yeah. Did, did you catch the, the cool little nerdy joke of uh, Relian, the kid who almost stabs Captain Fantastic reading uh, the Brothers Karamazov? Oh, no. I didn't <laughs> yeah. see that. Yeah, I caught that. The, like the, I guess this is like the third or fourth time I've seen it. Uh, good little good little joke there, Matt Ross. Uh, but but so so can I be satisfied living the self sufficient life, um, reading, playing music, exercising towards no other goal than self sufficiency, self reliance. Um, 
and it sounds like I'm just in the way I'm phrasing that it sounds like I'm trying to problematize it but I'm, I'm really not like so what else is there you know what I'm saying <laughs> yeah like I think it's uh, Camus in, in one of his earlier essays basically says something like everyone's just distracting themselves like all all of our all of our hobbies and all of our concerns are, are really just kind of distractions so so what's wrong with the distractions that Captain Fantastic and his children are engaging in. Um, well, then you get into this idea of what is a what is an ethical or moral distraction, and what is an unethical or immoral distraction. Right, because or immoral, because be, yeah, because you see the you see the alternative in in the mainstream culture with the the grandparents. And clearly, you know, this movie clearly rejects um, golf courses, you know, golf course wealth uh, and and all that. And, you know, there's that great moment where he gets on the, when they're driving the boss, Steve, and he gets on the speaker and says, here we see the embodiment embodiment of uh, Calvin Coolidge's statement about uh, the the chief business of America is business, uh, and so it rejects it rejects all that. But I I think your question is is warranted. Like, so what is what is their withdrawal in aid of? But also the question I would pose to that question is, what is the engagement in the culture? What is that? in aid of yeah what is anything in aid of it makes me think of the, <laughs> the question we posed last week i think you've said it, uh with mother when the uh able character shows up and says what, what are, are we doing yeah, here what are, you, what are any of us what doing here really what are doing here <clears throat> the scene in the bus where says uh americans uh participating in frenz- frenzied shopping as their only form of social interaction <laughs> And the kids are kind of bewildered, and it's sort of the same thing when they're in the uh, the bank, I think. And uh, the the kid says, "Are these people sick? Yes. They're all so fat. They're like all a, so fat. And because you know they've been kind of sheltered and they haven't really been out in society very much. And it kind of weirdly reminded me of uh, another Viggo Mortensen performance in The Road. Mm. Uh, if you remember when they find the bunker, and he like slicks his hair back, and he's drinking the Jack Daniels and like smoking the cigarette. And his son's just kind of staring at him because he doesn't, his son doesn't recognize any of this stuff because he was born after whatever the event is that ends the world. Mm-hmm. And Viggo Mortensen's character just looks at him and says, I must seem like I'm from a different planet to you or something like that. Um, and yeah. it, it, I got a similar kind of vibe here of, you know, Ben lived in that world. He kind of knows how it functions more or less. Uh, the kids, not quite so much. And even later on when Bo is arguing with him about going to college because he applies to, you know, the 10 best schools in the country and gets right. into all of them or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, he says, you know, you've turned me, you turned us into freaks. Unless it comes out of a book, I don't understand it. Like, I can't function in this world. And Ben's whole point is like, you don't have to, you can go live in the woods and you're a king right. there, right? Um, but, yeah, it's that question, <laughs> that enormous question, what is any of this in service of like why but, do any of it but it's I, I remember specifically thinking about that when he said that when he said I don't know anything if it doesn't come from a book and it's a very similar statement to uh, 
something Robin Williams character, Sean McGuire, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. in Good Will Hunting says, it's weird that I know his character's name. And when he's talking to Will and he says, he says, I can't learn anything from you that doesn't come out of a fucking book. Uh, <laughs> That's a great, you've probably even been late a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. And weirdly, just to uh, sidetrack for a second, uh, later in um, Goodwill Hunting, when they when they finally decide to talk in therapy, he says, uh, "It's like he responds to that question, which in the world of that movie took place weeks prior, I think." Yeah. He says, "I have been late, you know." <laughs> <laughs> like like he's just been waiting on that on the answer to that question. Fucking. Uh, oh yeah, big time. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Uh, I fucking love Goodwill Hunting. Everybody does. I don't Who care. Doesn't love Goodwill. I saw that movie when I was like fourteen, and I was like on board. I, I just I've watched it at least once every. It's year. a good like, you know, you have those movies, or at least I have those movies that were very kind of teenage years. So for me, it was like Garden State and Donnie Darko, and I feel like that's a lot of people. Yeah. But then there was that next step up where it's like you mature a little bit, and now. You need that next kind of. Yeah. You need that stronger drug, and that's like good will hunting, <laughs> right? Reality bites. Yeah, for me, for me, when I was like fourteen, I saw Goodwill Hunting, and I saw Ordinary People, like within the year, within a year, and I was like, this, this is what this, this is the this height is, of cinema. Cinema, <laughs> yeah, acting. Um, really, I think I just had like undiagnosed depression that need to be treated by a clinical psychiatrist like everyone uh, right anyway um captain fantastic yes what were we talking about um we were talking i don't know about... anything if it doesn't come yeah. from a book uh yeah i was thinking about that when he said that it's like does 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 both of them not know anything unless it comes from a book because it, it seems like the rest of the movie implies that he knows a whole lot of things uh very practical things about, like Captain uh, Viggo Mortensen's character says about setting, you know, treating, uh, setting a bone, or um, I can't remember the other examples he uses. Uh, you know, hunting and you know, being being self sufficient essentially. Uh, and so that line felt a little bit cheap to me when he says, "I don't know anything unless it comes from a book," because it, it, that seems supplemental or additional, like. He, he knows all these things and he you get the sense that he's sort of in some ways overly intellectual because he keeps identifying as like oh, I'm a Trotskyite or a Trotskyist or whatever <laughs> I'm not a Trotskyist anymore I'm a Maoist only what does he say only a only a Stalinist only would, a Stalinist would call a Trotskyist a, tr- a Trotskyite a Trotskyist or whatever it is uh, he's like anyway I'm a Maoist yeah. And so you see he's sort of... And Ben's response is, stay away from Marx. <laughs> like, d- don't talk to the girls about Marx. Right. But it goes back to this, uh, this phrase that we hear used constantly all the time, and I've, I've found myself using it, unfortunately, when I can't think of anything better, this term of the, the real world, right? So what is the real world other than a show on MTV, right? So it's... Well, let, let me quote... The great John Mayer. I just found out there's no such thing as the real world. <laughs> Only a lie you've got to rise above. Yeah. 
bitching. <laughs> so tight, yeah, t- tight, tight. Um, but and you even have it later on when uh, the the grandfather is talking, is yelling at Ben like he does throughout the whole movie. And he says, "Well, they they have to know how to function in the real world." And I think um, Catherine Hahn's character, the sister, even says that like they have to go to school and learn how to be in the real world. Right. And the point that that Ben's make. Ben the right? Yeah, that Ben's making the whole time is they already, like, I don't think that's the real world. I think the real world is what we're doing out in the woods, and they're perfectly adept at that. What, what, in reality, in the real world, the, <laughs> yeah. the real world is both of them. You know, nowadays, <laughs> in today's time, in today's society, um, that's a reference for any listeners out there to the phenomenon, any. And every English teacher has encountered of yeah. students using trite phrases such as in today's society yeah. or nowadays in which they are trying to adopt a sort of uh, wise tone in their writing. Webster's which is Dictionary artificial. defines <laughs> today as... Webster's Dictionary defines today's society as... Yeah. Um... I forgot what we were talking about. Um, <laughs> the oh, movie but, Captain Fantastic. Yeah, but, um, it's okay. So this idea that Ben's kind of has this idea that what they're doing is the real world, right? He's not really worried about whether or not they can, whether or not Bo can go to Princeton and you know do cancer research or whatever. That's not the goal, right? Um, and it's weird because you see the kids. You know, counterculture-wise, you always think of the young people as being the ones driving whatever, you know, radical movement. But here, you have the kids going against their father in order to conform more, I guess. So Bo wants to go to college, really, and wants to move in with his grandparents. Play video games. Play video games. Fucking Relian pisses me off. <laughs> he, he is, he's kind of... He is there, I think, to be like the 13-year-old shithead little kid like going through puberty and right. wearing the sleeveless shirts and, and, it, and, it, and, and in some ways it doesn't even make any sense like he says uh, when they're celebrating Noam Chomsky Day he's like why can't we just celebrate Christmas like every other family it's like it it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because part of the uh, you know world we're supposed to accept is that these kids are um have been secluded and withdrawn and they don't understand that they are uh, in some way other from the mainstream world. Uh, And so his just like clear awareness of the weirdness of this holiday kind of, to me, seems like it kind of subverts the, one of the tenets of the, of the film, Aurelian is in a way is kind of an entry point for the audience, right? Because because yeah. you know there's a part of us watching this movie, and we 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 have instincts to ask that question: Why can't these fucking people just celebrate normal <laughs> yeah. a normal holiday? Like even uh, if your heart's not in it, come on, it's <laughs> right. Christmas, right? Christmas is awesome. Yeah, eat the cranberry sauce. Shut up, just, <laughs> it's fine. Um, 
Yeah, and the, the whole Noam, Noam Chomsky Day scene um, and everything that leads up to it with him robbing the grocery store, which I think... I, I think that's supposed to be... It's comedic, but I also think it's supposed to be sort of a, a moral test for the audience of is what they're doing okay that they're stealing all this food from the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have that problem because I saw it and I said, eh, fuck them. Like, it's corporation, take the food, who cares? Um, uh, definitely, I'm with that. But I feel like that's supposed to be a point where the audience has to be like, oh, well, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Now they've gone too far, this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, yeah, and the, the grandfather uh, character teaching br- them to brings steal? that up. Yeah. <laughs> Operation Free the Food. But I think the the other side of that moral dilemma or problem or whatever it is is uh, it's food and it it's a human right, not a not something you should have to have money to have access to. Yeah, you know, and that's after they've been to the diner and he doesn't let them order anything. There's no real food on this menu. What's soda? Poison water. Poison. What's cola? <laughs> they have hot dogs. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so they, they celebrate Noam Chomsky Day. But but Noam's birthday is December 7th. Well, we're celebrating it today. We'll actually just be reciting the entirety <laughs> yeah. of the film here. Uh, but that whole scene is interesting for you know the reason you already talked about, that Relian is not only aware that what they're doing is outside of the mainstream and a little weird to people looking at it from the outside, but he's also kind of not cool with that and, and is saying, well, why can't we just do the you know, the standard thing. But then the scene when he's giving them all the gifts is kind of interesting to me mm-hmm. because he's giving them like weapons. Basically he gives the little kid the joy of sex because he had asked about what intercourse is. <laughs> and that's the scene where he's like a uh, pee comes nut from the vagina. Um, <laughs> right. And the fact that he phrases it like that is interesting. Um, but generally speaking, yes, that is where she pees. <laughs> and so that, you know, he gives one of them a knife, gives one of them a bow, um, you know, all these crazy things. And it was kind of interesting where it's like he's withdrawing from all capitalist consumption, it seems like, except when it comes to, like, buying mountain climbing gear or, like, carbon fiber bows. or Well, well to me, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about the role ritual plays in this movie. And I feel like, in a lot of ways, it's it seems strange to me that... Um, the character played by Viggo Mortensen, Ben, is will be viewed by most contemporary audiences as very subversive and liberal when when so much of what he kind of espouses is traditional and and conservative. Like he has this real uh, clear concern with ritual. He wants, you know, the movie starts with this ritualistic yeah. killing of a deer uh, and and clearly he's put a lot of time and effort into obtaining these gifts for his kids uh, and then the holiday you know plays a special role and, and, and so it's in a weird way it's kind of this conservative vision of of the important things in life are uh, bringing up your children correctly uh, with a moral center uh, through tradition and rituals. Um, and it's like only in the 21st century where like 
you know, there's no such thing as conservatism or liberalism. It's neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Uh, can, can a movie where the, where the moral center is about having a moral center and ritual and tradition and self-reliance, could this be considered like a subversive, uh, you know, hippie kind of thing? Like that, oh, that God. Like, like the house they, they occupy at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. that's your great-grandmother's house. Yeah, with like the that's chicken not, coop. That, right. They've turned Steve, which was their one sort of link to go out into to the the quote unquote real world. Uh, now it's a chicken coop. It's right. immobilized, right? We we're rooted now. We're settled, right? Um, but yeah, it's a very sort of like traditional seeming home. Uh, and, and to that point, uh, I think Nash, we've both been sort of making our way uh, simultaneous with this podcast. We've been making our way through. Roderick Nash, uh, Wilderness in the American Mind. Right. And I, I keep wanting to say imagination. I do too. Uh, he makes a point in, in I think it's uh, towards the philosophy of wilderness, chapter 13, about the 60s and uh, how growing your hair long <laughs> is, is sort of synonymous <clears throat> with wilderness, nature you know the overgrown wilderness or whatever yeah. and and there's this uh, maybe my favorite scene in captain fantastic is this very short uh kind of seemingly random scene where uh, ben shaves uh after after we think he sort of abandoned his kids and i guess he to his mind he has but they turn out to be hiding in the you know, underneath the van, underneath the bus. Uh, anyway, he shaves, and I think it's very interesting that Ross, the director, chooses to show us the fact that Ben cleans up his mess in the yeah, truck stop. That was interesting. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's not a clean bathroom. It's like grungy. No, no and, so, and, and so and then his son Bodovin finds his uh, clippers yeah. and shaves his head he's got long hair but he, he you know shaves his head and there's that great moment where they they're on the bus they're on the bus yeah. at night and they lock eyes in the in the rear view mirror and Viggo Mortensen you know runs his hand over his head silently wordlessly acknowledging that Bodovin has shaved his head and then Bodovin runs his hand over his face silently wordlessly acknowledging that Ben has shaved his beard and it you know I don't really have an explanation for why that's so such a nice moment but it is uh, anyway I, I because I just read that in Nash about the uh, wilderness being associated with sort of long hair and you know hippies growing their hair long I associate it with this in, in the film of this very nice moment of them not they're they're not going back on their philosophies Mm -hmm. you know they're not retreating from from what they've their value system of self-reliance in nature but they are in some way growing or maturing and becoming more in control of themselves um and and sort of re re re-centering 
and I so so I don't think it's any coincidence that this recentering or maturing happens at the same time that they are um, in a very practical way taking care of themselves. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like shaving their head, shaving their beard. Uh, anyway, I think you could also maybe read that as uh, them compromising in some way, kind of the cutting the locks as being the sign of, you know, this is our initiation into, you know, society or whatever it may be. And so now we have to deal with this. And But it's it's a sort of like, it's not a failure. It's more of like a willingness of like, okay, this is the next thing we're going to Right, it's, to it's a growth. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah let's, uh, we were talking about this earlier, the uh, Leo Marx, who wrote uh, The Machine in the Garden, has the concept called... Um, the middle landscape. And so I think what we see in that scene is the beginning of the compromise that is the middle landscape. So Marx basically says the, Leo Marx says the, the middle landscape is kind of this compromise between nature and culture, uh, between sort of chaos and, um, not chaos, but, uh, wilderness and, say, and cultivation. Well, there, Jordan Peterson, <laughs> talking about chaos. Okay. Uh, Dominance hierarchies. Uh, I was when you were talking about uh, tradition and ritual and and uh, uh, kind of looking after yourself and self sufficiency. I was like having these horrific visions of Ben sitting in the forest, like reading a Jordan Peterson book and just kind of like nodding along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Twelve rules to life or whatever. Man, and, and you know this because. Not to get off topic here, but to me there are two Jordan Petersons. There's like this self-help bullshit guru, you know, who get his, has this huge presence online and is involved in identity politics in the worst way possible. And then there's this sort of interesting um, thinker who... I, and part of my part of my perspective on this is is admittedly colored by my interest in Carl Jung, who Jordan Peterson expresses you know a lot of admiration yeah. for, and and I think there are good things to uh, a, a lot of good tools that come out of Jungian psychology for analyzing culture and and all these things, uh, not the least of which is is environmental things. Like yeah. I, like I said, I think in the first episode, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, environmental destruction in union psychology and uh, and all that but uh, and just the fact that Jordan Peterson is one of the few people who you even hear mention Carl Jung in you know yeah. contemporarily uh, it just really makes me wish that he wasn't the same guy <laughs> yeah. you know spouting this bullshit about I, identity politics and all these things uh, and, and yeah. pronouns it's just like this is what you're focusing on at, the, at this, at this moment the, this in history the, the crusade you want to <laughs> exactly um, yeah yeah that, that Zizek debate is just going to be masturbatory yeah utterly, I can't imagine that being utterly masturbatory than a, than a circle jerk train wreck yeah that is a I think Daniel Borstein uh, the historian wrote a great book called The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America, and that 
is a fucking pseudo society of the pseudo spectacle. If uh, if ever there were a pseudo event, the Zizek Peterson debate is I mean, one. The fact that you have to buy tickets to attend it, and they're, I can imagine they're expensive. I don't know. I haven't. I don't care to look at them. Um, but yeah. Anyway, um, Captain Fantastic. Yes. So so let's talk. Uh, I, I think Leo Marx. And, you know, the machine in the garden and the middle landscape, I think that plays a big role, or that trope that Marx describes plays a big role in this movie. And, and I think it may be, to some degree, conscious in Ross's mind, because there's a, there's a great moment at the beginning where, for the, for the first time, Ben and Bodovan come in, into town and... This is where Bodovan learns that he is being he's he's been accepted to Brown and Princeton and all these schools, yeah. and uh, in a great moment, as he's learning this, uh, as he's learning he's been accepted, we see that uh, we see a train is behind him, very yeah. loud and industrial, um, sort of cuts through the forest behind him. And of course, the machine in the garden, that, you know, the, the train cutting through this pastoral uh, landscape is the quintessential image. Um, and so we see that for, for this world, um, education is the sort of aspect of culture that is intruding into this sort of natural paradise. Uh, and you see that at the end, obviously, in their concession that the the children should go to school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so education really is the train cutting through this this paradise. Uh, but, but again, uh, there's problems with this because we've it's already been established through that uh, very entertaining scene at uh, Han and Zahn's house where he calls the nephews down I can't remember their names but they're just like, like Justin and Jonathan <laughs> right. like just really just the most names. basic uh, suburban kids and they don't know what the Bill of Rights is really and yeah. then of course uh, Ben calls his youngest down and yeah. and that kid knows verbatim He's like, he knows the philosophy like, behind the Bill of Rights yeah. and, and everything Morton said, like, uh, rote memorization is not what I'm looking for. <laughs> right. Just say something about it in your own words. Right. right. Uh, so, so school uh, and public education has been very problematized. And yet, the end of the film kind of concedes that they need yeah. to go to school. Um, so that's, that's something... We need to talk about the, the the scene with the kid um, Zaja, the one of the youngest ones, um, talking about the Bill of Rights and giving this really giving his opinion on Citizens United and all that sort of shit. Um, ben uses that as this kind of knockout blow against these allegations that he's not raising the children right and that they should be in school and that kind of stuff. And that's when uh, you know Catherine Hahn's character kind of backs off. And says, okay, fine, I get your point. But to me, that you know, that's not really the knockout blow that he thinks it is um, because it, it explains away the homeschooling part which is okay yeah fine you can be homeschooled and still be intelligent and know all the things that you should know having gone through school and all that sort of stuff but 
it, it does it gets back to that the whole thing of Bo saying I don't know anything unless it comes I don't know how to exist within the society right um, so again but Ben sort of saying you don't have to exist within the society yeah yeah but at the end of the the movie like you're saying it kind of says well actually you do or you should yeah so I think that's a good transition to um, talking about this this concept that uh, I certainly didn't invent. It certainly didn't invent, but uh, what I call the bitch ass backpedal. <laughs> uh, and this is this is a moment. It's like the well crafted fuck you. The bitch <laughs> yeah. ass backpedal. Uh, well, the well crafted fuck you is a uh, uh, Judith Butler phrase, but uh, the bitch ass backpedal I will take credit for. Um, to some degree but the bitch ass backpedal is uh, basically the that's point how I swim say what I said that's my, my swimming stroke <laughs> the bitch ass backpedal right uh, the point at which a seemingly subversive film starts to undercut its own subversiveness or walks back you know subtly walks back or takes back the uh, its earlier radical claims by which the audience's attention was gained. Uh, but the back pedal allows the audience, you know, ultimately the back pedal allows the audience to leave the film unchallenged. Um, so, like I said, I don't take full credit for this idea. Uh, in this book, I keep mentioning uh, every episode. The Spirit of Disobedience by Curtis White. He's talking about the movie Office Space, which everyone has seen, I'm pretty sure. And he, he does a really good reading of it and and basically, you know, says that at a certain point it starts walking back its own the the conditions of the plot that we you know, by which we find the film entertaining and subversive and, and meaningful. So I just want to read a little bit, uh, a few paragraphs here from Curtis White's reading of Office Space. Uh, he, he starts off talking about how, you know, Mike Judge, who made Office Space, sort of roots this film in kind of 60s kind of counterculturalism and, and the hypnotism that uh, Peter, uh, his yeah. character, the character Peter, kind of uh, succumbs to is really kind of a version of being stoned uh, and uh, sort of 60s counterculture of, of, you know, dropping out of the mainstream rat race and getting stoned and, and you know, freeing yourself from the corporate life. Anyway, uh, Curtis White says, hatred of job, stoned vision, and slacker freedom firmly established Judge begins to retreat in earnest when Peter has an interview with the Bobs, two outside consultants brought in to downsize Inatech's payroll. Peter has confessed to them that he does maybe 15 minutes of real work each week. He then expresses an about-face on his own desire to do, quote, nothing at all. It's not that he's a slacker. He simply lacks that hoary old capitalist incentive to work profit motive. Peter, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. It's a problem of motivation, right? 
Now if I work my ass off and Inatech ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. Where's my motivation? Judge here retreats from what at first appeared an uncompromising opposition to the corporate world. The movie seems not to believe in its own most fundamental social convictions, odd as that should sound. Peter doesn't want freedom, apparently. He doesn't want creativity or personal autonomy. He wants profit-sharing. Are we supposed to imagine that the horror of life under Boss Bill Lumberg all goes away if we get profit-sharing? It would be nice to think that this is some sort of false step or illogic in the film. Unfortunately, it is merely a familiar betrayal. After an early moment of truth-telling, we are now firmly on the road to a happy ending, all reconciled to the world as it is. End quote. So I want to I want to ask I want to pose the question like to what degree does Captain Fantastic do the bitch ass backpedal? You know, <laughs> how far y- back? Yeah, yeah. Pedal? How much ground does it concede at the end? You know, how much compromise does it make? I want a quantifiable number <laughs> answer to that question. Six point three. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we talked about the ending a little bit, and it's really, I think Ben's attitude toward it is summed up pretty well at the very end when all the kids are uh, getting ready for school. They're like doing their homework or whatever around the the breakfast table, and he's made their little bag lunches with all their names written on them. Yeah, domesticity signifiers. And, yeah, and he's yeah. still got his like pocket watch, and he's like checking it. And he's sitting at the table, and he's just sort of staring out the window, and then he just has a really big sigh. All the kids are like, <sighs> And the camera lingers just long enough to where we know we're supposed to be paying attention to this scene um, and thinking about it as opposed to just seeing it and, and sort of contemplating it rather than just oh, here's a, a scene of blissful domesticity because he's yeah. staring out the window. He's not looking at his family. Yeah, and the look on his face is just sort of... He's kind not of long, wistful it's, it's, it's a look of yeah. longing for what he's looking at outside, this thing he's left, this you know, wilderness. So it does seem that you know, definitely compromise has been made. They're kind of getting toward that, that middle ground, the sort of middle landscape where they've said, okay, we'll come just to the edge of society we'll live in this house and we'll still be very you know we'll raise our own food and have our own chickens and all this sort of stuff right as opposed um, to so, so you don't want anyone else's chickens yeah first thing <laughs> first thing you do is get your own chicken um it's sort of like when you get internet you buy your own modem to save the money you buy the chickens um but you know definitely this compromise has been made and we're sort of or at least i i'm left thinking well i don't think ben's very pleased with this it's kind of like a, a failure sort of like he he lost a little bit right um yeah yeah it seems like ross there is uh you know sort of letting the audience know that he is uh kind of ambivalent about this compromise this middle landscape there's something there's something being given up and, and a question i wrote down in thinking about the ending was does the ending of Captain Fantastic suggest the world or or society not to sound like a freshman college student the the puppy society (laughs) 
<laughs> nice uh, <clears throat> Billy Madison. Way outdated. Drop right there. Anyway, uh, does the ending of Captain Fantastic suggest the world should conform to the Cash clan? That's another thing we need to talk about is the fact the that Cash. their last name is Cash. Uh, uh, does the world shit I gotta read it over again does the ending of Captain Fantastic suggest the world should conform to the Cash clan or that they should conform to the world to me the success or failure of the film lies in how much it concedes at the end to the world it critiques at the beginning so are we left thinking that the Han and Zahn family needs to be more like the Cash family? Or are we left thinking uh, that the Cash family needs to be more like the Han and Zahn family? I think that the answer to that question is very much problematized. That's a word I keep saying. That's a kind of a shitty word. I don't know. You know, that's a word I keep saying in relation to uh, this movie because there's a lot of ambivalence, I think, uh, expressed in this movie. But 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 a, a lot of ambivalence, I think, is expressed by the fact that Ben is looking longingly out the window at the end. So so if, if he weren't, you would get this feeling of sort of domestic bliss. You know, they, they cue the, the cigarose uh, soundtrack uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that is playing at the beginning in this sort of paradise in the wilderness and I, I think it's the same track playing in this domestic bliss where the you know the Steve the van or the uh, bus has been converted to this chicken coop and it's a more traditional uh, homestead and uh, yeah but but then the soundtrack fades and it's just been looking longingly out the window as if aware of this uh, of what's been lost in this compromise he's made to in uh, Marx's phrase the middle landscape yeah and you know something that just occurred to me now as we're talking about this is where did their money come from at the end just throughout the movie really because it's it sort of well, it, well, the, it leaves uh, me thinking like maybe it's it's one of those great things in life where it's like oh you have to be wealthy to live that cheaply right <laughs> right uh, was it Dolly Parton who says it costs a lot of money to look this cheap yes because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the like, is it, selling things is it the yeah he makes a little bit of money in, in town selling his like birdhouses or whatever. And I assume that they had some money saved and they don't spend anything. Well, that's what I think it's the grandfather figure says, how do you still have money? Or, or maybe it's Steve's on. I can't remember. Yeah. One of them says, how do you still have money? He says, we only buy what we need. Yeah. And you've seen him earlier making a little bit of money with this. And at the bank getting just like the stack of 20s out of the bank. So they have money. And we know, we know that it. he used to farm. Yeah. They had a farm in, in Colorado, Oregon. Oregon? Well, yeah. they, they, he like said they Boulder went from Boulder, and then they bought the farm in Oregon. Oregon. Yeah, and then they moved to the woods. Yeah, so they're either in they're in the Pacific Northwest somewhere. Anyway, uh, but yeah, the fact that their last name is Cash is a very interesting choice. Yeah. And they can buy the house at the end, and they can afford Bo's 
plane ticket to Namibia. Yeah, and that's and, a, that's another thing. You know, I was talking earlier about how ridiculous it is that this movie could be considered subversive and and liberal when it's about uh, ritual and tradition, and and really the idea of capitalism is kind of bolstered through, you know, Ben. We see Ben has, through his leisure time, made these birdhouses or, or whatever they are. I can't even remember what they are. They're uh, fine artisan handcrafts. Right. And, and, and he, he makes his thing and takes it to town. And the town folk pay him for what he's made. Like, that is just textbook capitalism. You know, that that's what it is. Uh, he sells his surplus for profit and but of course that's that's not the world we live in that's not we don't live in capitalism what we live in is like a corporate oligarchy where like six businesses own the world we were just talking about doing a uh watching wally for next week and disney and and all these all these uh issues with disney disney certainly one of the you know, handful of companies that run the fucking world. Yeah, Amazon, uh, Google, so on, so forth. Uh, Ashley Madison. Ashley uh, Madison. <laughs> now, uh, Born Hub. Um, <laughs> all the heavy hitters. Anyway, uh, yeah, the movie does not explicitly uh, dispute the textbook capitalism. But that, yeah, that's it. But because you but, see, like his his so labor so far removed from capitalism. Yeah, because Ben's labor is condensed into the birdhouse, right? Like that's yeah. the, his surplus of labor, right? Um, and then he, the person, buys it for what I assume is a fair price, and gives him cash. And gives him cash, right? And then he goes about his merry way. Yeah, that's like sixteen eighty two capitalism. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's not how it. You know, like. Maybe if you only shop at flea markets, <laughs> you can have that kind of life. Right. But, but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and, and that's what I think that Ross calls our attention. Like, there's nothing inherently flawed about that sort of free enterprise thinking. When that free enterprise thinking goes through the march of fucking history and, and technology and industrialization... And becomes corporate capitalism, casino capitalism, late capitalism. It's it's a completely different thing, and it, I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, Citizens United is mentioned in this movie, uh, as if to acknowledge that we, this is you know we're not in free enterprise, we're in a just a clusterfuck of corporate oligarchy, uh, where just insanely we recognize. Corporations as people, yeah. As uh, I, I, the arc I can't history. even really wrap my head around that. But uh, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward bullshit. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yes. Um, um, okay, so 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 let's get a, a little a little meta and go back to the question we keep posing. So so given these sort of counter countercultural. Uh, pretensions uh, I don't mean that really negatively uh, like it sounded uh, so with the sort of countercultural awareness that this movie displays can a movie 
you know, that it, uh, just categorically technological, um, do what we want it to do. Can it, can it, can a movie that is inherently technological and mainstream be subversive because it's categorically participating in the culture that it tries to critique? I don't know. But I, I think what Captain Fantastic does that the other movies we've talked about so far doesn't is what you're just talking about, which is this kind of sly subversiveness, which is a, a cool sounding phrase with a lot of S's on it. Um, but it, it, the essence of sly subversiveness. Uh, so it it's calling all these things into question, and there's not a clear cut sort of feel good ending for really anyone it's it's one giant compromise um so you're kind of left with this feeling of well they've lost what they had but what they had wasn't really perfect but what they have now isn't perfect and so and it just sort of makes your head spin um but i think i think that's a good place for a movie to leave you most of the time um is with that feeling of disorientation because at least then you're in in the moment you're kind of thinking about well what is this how does this relate to my life right. how does it relate to everyone's lives right and so many movies do not express this ambivalence they they take a take a firm stance and and they succumb to what i called earlier the the bitch ass backpedal i was thinking about movies the babp yeah yeah the babp the bad uh, p <laughs> bad p i was thinking about movies that depict countercultures yeah. Uh, in thinking about Captain Fantastic and I thought about um, like I mentioned last week uh, Wanderlust and uh, I don't know if I mentioned it last week The Ballad of Jack and Rose and uh, another good one I think is The Village yeah. and uh, Into the Wild and um, so first of all The Village uh, which is a you know a movie that says this counterculture you know, this sort of uh, self-reliant village in the woods, secluded village, is necessary because so many people in the towns, as they refer to it, uh, get murdered and or raped, right? Um, and so it, it's just hyper-violent, and we have to withdraw from that and start our own sort of counterculture. And, and yet that... Uh, impetus is kind of subverted when Ivy uh, Howard what's her name? Um, Bryce Dallas Bryce, Howard I almost said Mimi Rose Howard but, that, but that's a character <laughs> from Girls and I don't even think that's the right last name Bryce Dallas Howard uh, her character Ivy who's blind you know uh, not escapes but travels out of the village and meets this park ranger called Kevin. <laughs> we need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> yeah, um, that's it's it's in my Shyamalan, right? Like playing Kevin. Am no, 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 no. Ke- Kevin is the park ranger, but then his Kevin's boss, who's like never fully shown, is played by okay, M. Night Shyamalan. Okay. Yeah, um, but no, we're really supposed to like Kevin. He's kind of meek. And meager and um, deferential, and 
He's just kind of endearing. And it's implied because because Ivy specifically mentions, you know, this this kindness in Kevin's voice. And that mention is meant to in a way subvert everything that we've learned about the rape and murder in the towns. And it's like, <laughs> oh, you know what? The the mainstream life is is not that bad. You know why? Because Kevin is polite and and he's okay. He's an all right guy. He's one of the good ones, right? And so so that's what I mean when I say the bitch ass backpedal. It's this moment where uh, where a movie kind of walks back the the uh, the conditions that it has established in order for us to enjoy the movie to to find the movie subversive in any way. Uh, and so we're supposed to think that because of the kindness in Kevin's voice that in some way the the murder and rape inherent in the mainstream culture doesn't necessarily have to be escaped and so and so the point of all this is that we can leave the theater after watching the village or or leave our living room or the fucking airplane or wherever we're watching it <laughs> and, and, and be like oh you know what our this world I inhabit is is worth inhabiting, and I don't have to change anything. Uh, and I think that sort of Curtis White's point about office space is, you know, the first hour of the film is very subversive, but once the focus shifts from, oh, the whole system, the whole culture of corporate work is is a problem, to, oh, the specific corporation, Inatech, doesn't, have, you know, their policy is isn't fair... Um, that that is the shift from a you know culture critique to a you know just a, a specific condition of the particular film's plot, uh, and so it, it it undercuts everything, um, and so that that's why I say how, to what degree does Captain Fantastic do this? How much does it concede? Certainly, if it concedes anything. That final scene of Ben staring out the window expresses some some uh, hesitance to to concede anything, uh, and there's there's plenty of other films you can you can talk about this with. Um, I think I mentioned last week Wanderlust, yeah, and how it seems to me that the the people uh, Ben in Captain Fantastic is addressing in his speech about you know, Calvin Coolidge and consumption and the business of America's business. The people he's talking about are kind of the audience for Wanderlust. The people just like all too ready, like primed to laugh at these weirdos who live in this commune who just like crazily want to live off the land and be self-reliant and, you know, uh, in, anyway, they're just they're very othered in in Wanderlust, and, and like the humor of the movie is dependent upon us buying into their otherness. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. uh, and and so and so, Captain Fantastic and Wanderlust are kind of opposites in that. Uh, to laugh at Captain Fantastic, we have to sort of be opposed to that, and to laugh at Wanderlust, we kind of have to be opposed to the sort of perspective of Captain Fantastic. 
Yeah, and then and Wonderlust isn't. I've only seen it once a long time ago, but one of the big moments of conflict is about Jennifer Aniston's character sleeping with the guy, whoever the one of the other hippies in the Just, commune, Justin Thoreau. Yeah, Justin Thoreau. Just his character, yeah. And uh, it's that sort of moment of like, this is what free love gets you. The kind of weird undermining of, of this, this yeah, uh, it, it, ownership, it, anti-ownership. Right, thing. in any sort of countercultural story, it always comes back to sex. Oh, yeah, and 100%. It, and it's always and like, Mad oh, if you have sex with more than one person, you know, you, you it's a bridge too far. You're, you're beyond the pale. <laughs> you want to milk cows and grow <laughs> corn, that's one thing, but you start <laughs> fucking around. Right, right. As if to suggest that the mainstream culture of repressive monogamy is just like without flaw <laughs> you know yeah. everyone's perfectly happy in this culture but <laughs> as soon as you start uh, suggesting that uh, uh, you know monogamy is is crazy uh, that's when you're getting into real subversive territory or you're getting into to problems there anyway uh, there's Actually, a, I will say though that uh, monogamy very much reinforced in Captain Fantastic with the Ben and his wife and also when he's talking to Bo and he's uh, he, he gives him that advice like if you have sex with a woman be respectful even if you don't love her that, that kind of <laughs> right, right. weird advice he's giving yeah uh, not weird advice but you know in a weird way yeah like, yeah and, and that last scene too I think gets at something great the, uh, Captain Fantastic to me seems weirdly kind of Freudian in its uh, it's sort of uh, diagnosis mainstream culture as repressive uh, especially uh, concerning death um, you know obviously oh, yeah, yeah. The, the mother character has has killed herself and has died and you know that scene we were talking about with Steve Zahn and Catherine Hahn at the dinner table um, they just kind of refused to tell their children yeah, the truth she was very sick she was very the sick medicine didn't work sick and... people die and so, then Captain Fantastic says, "Is what he says." <laughs> yeah, see people die sometimes. And uh, Ben says, "She slit her wrists. That's what happened." Yeah. Uh, and then you see the funeral scene where, uh, you know, someone who didn't even know the person who's died is eulogizing her in a way, in a you know through the lens of a religion she didn't even subscribe to. And also just in a disingenuous kind of rote way. Where just, yeah. She loved dogs. Walks or, you know, on the beach or whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, so there's this, uh, to me it seems like the movie sort of diagnoses all this, you know, consumerism and uh, repression that you see in the, in mainstream culture as as a fear of being honest. Like I said, the movie's kind of about truth-telling. It's a fear of, of looking at the reality of life, and I think that's why the movie starts early on with Bodovan slitting the throat of, a, of an animal to get his meat. And, because, and, you know, when you eat meat, an animal had to die. Exactly. Yeah, it's looking into the, into the, the face of the, of the truth. Um which I think, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's the one ethical way to engage with the world is at least truthfully. Um, 
because there's the great scene when they they go and they dig up their mother and they have her on the bus and they just have her laying I mean, she's dead right she's been embalmed and all that um, and they're just sort of looking at her and touching her hair and like putting flowers behind her ears and stuff and that's so taboo yeah and it, yeah. It, there are plenty of people I'm sure saw this movie and saw that and thought oh that's real weird that's where I that's where they check out yeah, yeah but it's it's a really like touching scene and it goes back to like a, a ritual that this is how they're coping this is how they're grieving and it, it's kind of it's sort of beautiful in a way but for most people you'd see that and think oh they they dug up a body that's a felony and also mm-hmm. it's gross and <laughs> it made me think of six feet under in the first season of six feet under uh which i don't remember that well but i remember there was a obviously that whole show takes place in like a funeral parlor mm-hmm. uh but where one of the characters is talking about seeing another culture mourn and and recognizing the just utter uh, discrepancies between how American culture mourns and how this, I can't remember where he was in this fictional scenario. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a real repression and uh, disengagement from reality uh, in American mourning customs. Well, and, the, and you know, there's this whole idea that mourning customs that we do have they're they're for the benefit of the living, right? They're not helping the dead. They're already dead, right? So, all of these trappings, these funeral homes that are like twenty thousand square feet or whatever, and the embalming and the the three thousand dollar caskets and all that stuff, that's for the benefit of the living, right? So, what does it mean that we are so repressed and so unwilling to look at things truthfully and be unflinching? Um, who is that in service of? Well, of of us, right? Um, you know, the mother doesn't care if you tell people she slit her wrist. She slit her wrist like she's dead. Um, so, and so the fact that the family is doing this, you know, going on this great big mission to rescue mom, as they call it, um, it it shows a level of, of honesty at the yeah. very least. Um, and that they're going to such great lengths to, you know, quote unquote, respect her wishes, right? Respect mm-hmm. the wishes of the dead. Which, in reality, is just a way for them to sort of deal with it in their own kind of way, right? To get their, you know, whatever they need out of this experience to be able to to grieve po- properly and to move on from it. Right, and that, I mean, that's what mourning rituals are about. Like you said, the dead are dead. Uh, it, what are they gonna, um, I think it's uh, Cormac McCarthy in his book, Sutri, which I fucking love. He says something like, how surely are the dead beyond death? Death is something the living carry with them. Um, yeah, once you're dead, you're dead. Mourning is for, <laughs> end quote, a few seconds ago. <laughs> like, uh, uh, yeah, mourning is for, uh, is for us, is for the living. Um, Which is why her parents, you know, have the big Christian funeral and they, the headstone that, I forget what the quote is. She loved God or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then the the little kid said, "Let's dig her up so she doesn't have to lay under that bullshit right, for the rest right. of forever." But I but I love that they put the dirt back. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and and it's it, it's it's like let these people have their delusions, which is kind of where the movie lands, right? Let these people have their delusions. right, and and that gets to uh, that gets to a question we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, 
where we sort of said, yeah, you know, the question cannot be, is there space for an authentic counterculture in America? You know, there is and always has been a minority of people who, you know, want to live in harmony with their environment. It's only fairly recently that climate science has shown us that, you know, the practicality and necessity of this lifestyle that's, you know, in harmony with nature. Uh, But, you know, like I said earlier, it's the same way the movie industry makes room for the Captain Fantastics and the First Reforms and the Mothers uh, to get some sort of Oscar nominations and establish indie credibility. Uh, you know, like what I'm saying is that counterculture is in general is acknowledged as a healthy part of a you know democratic nation, but it but it cannot remain a minority. It can't remain like a counterculture. It has to be, you know, become the mainstream culture. And the question is is how to move the tenets of a counterculture, at least the ones conducive to human inhabitability of the earth, how to move those into the mainstream culture. So, so we're talking about, you know, the movie uh, saying, oh, it's fine for these people to have their you know, their delusions, but it's not, it's really (laughs) not. And, Uh, and even the compromise position that the family's in at the end, if you think about their, you know, carbon footprint and their consumption levels and all that, that even if we were to push more people to live just like that, that is, you know, miles better than the family in the suburbs with the, um, you know, the Han and Zahn kids playing the, the violent video game and all that stuff. Um, so it's that point where like even the the compromise level where Ben is sort of looking longfully at what he's lost that is still so much better than the average and like I said that is that is this movie's ultimate redemption is that it does not concede that much and I, and I think you see in those in these other movies I've listed before The Village uh, into the wild. I don't remember if it, I don't remember if I, I said that, but that's another yeah. one. Wanderlust, uh, where they concede so much. There's like we talked about the middle landscape, Leo Marx's middle landscape. Those movies are indicative of just this radical shift in what we consider the middle. In uh, and I suspect that it's uh, simultaneous with the radical shift right in American politics. Uh, But we see this middle landscape shifting into what is normal is for the people, the characters in these movies who encounter these countercultures to convert their experiences with this weird other into some sort of commercial product. So, uh, you know, uh, at the end of Wanderlust, our our entry points into this movie are Paul Rudd and... uh, Jennifer Aniston's characters and they of course write a book I think of some <laughs> sort about about their experience yeah, I think with it's these called Wonderlust right is, I can't may, remember I, I think maybe uh, that was I, the I did not watch it again thing. yeah um, but they sort of convert their experience into this commercial product uh, 
And so that is the extent of their relationship with these hippies, essentially. Yeah. A commercial one. Uh, there's a mention of that in Into the Wild, where the uh, Chris McCandless character mentions he wants to write a book about his journey or whatever. And it's like, first of all, that, that happens, not by him, but by John Krakauer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, so so that sort of subverts the whole notion of like living off the grid, of like converting right. this experience into a commercially viable product. Uh, and one I can't remember if I mentioned or not, uh, the Ballad of Jack and Rose, the Rebecca Miller film. Uh, it's even worse, weirdly, because it has all this these pretensions of profundity because it's got this indie cred. Daniel Day Lewis is in it. It's fucking Rebecca Miller. Uh, yeah, th- this movie sort of its basic conclusion is that uh, you know we've got this this ex sort of commune leader in in Day Lewis's character, and uh, basically it says all uh, the, you know it's a, it's a matter of preference whether you live this sort of self reliant, self sufficient uh, life consistent with your environment or whether you want to be like Bo Bridges character um, abusive to the land and promote suburban development the movie sort of subvert you know uh, flirts with uh, nihilism and it's you know there's no difference between these two philosophies it's just a matter of taste Um, anyway and then going back briefly to Into the Wild that's kind of that's sort of a story of McCandless's misunderstanding of living off the grid, right? And sort of misreading his heroes and thinking this is the way that it should be done. And going back to Nash, there's a whole chapter on Alaska, you know, and and McCandless obviously famously died in Alaska. And and there's there's a lot of attention in Nash's book given to the sort of mythology of Alaska that McCandless ultimately succumbs to. Well... I don't know if you've heard this, but we were meant to be pioneers, uh, not trailblazers, not caretakers. Um, what does he say? I lo- the quote is is so good. It's like we've forgotten who we are, Don. <laughs> Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. God, <laughs> um, I'm all whiskeyed up. Man. <laughs> you got me doing McConaughey impressions, but. Yeah, so the and and at the end of this film, I don't think it does that sort of. I don't think it bitch ass backpedals, really. But it does. It has no answers, right? Because what would the answer be? Yeah, there's a difference between ambivalence and bitch ass backpedaling. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And so we're left with this idea of: Is the family better off? Were they better off in the woods? Is there another like way a, that they could? It's like I be? said. It, it's hard to tell whether the movie says the world should be more like the Cash family or the Cash family should be more like the world. I think it, to me, it seems like it really wants the world to be more like the Cash family, but it knows it's not going to be. Yeah. And so, and so they are the ones that have to compromise. Yeah. And my, my position would be they should all be like a different thing, a different third thing that's, even better right. off in the distance. And even better compromise yeah. between those things. Yeah. That's what we what we need now uh, in today's society <laughs> is a better compromise from our previous compromise. A more middle landscape. A more middle. We need to be even more middler 
than before. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, is there anything else we need to cover, really? Um, I mean, we never got around to really getting into Nash, but that's fine. Um, is there anything you wanted to mention? I can't remember if there's anything specifically. For some reason, I've been thinking about uh, about the tendency of, you know, we we're talking about the bitch-ass backpedal, and, and about the tendency of movies to kind of have this pretense of countercultural philosophy, but ultimately be swallowed by this larger economic mainstream and it was it, it made me think about a poem by the late great Tony Hoagland he, he just died this past summer uh, he's got a great poem called Hard Rain and if you'll indulge me I'll read uh, Hard Rain I'll allow it by Tony Hoagland after I heard It's a Hard Rain's a Gonna Fall played softly by an accordion quartet through the ceiling speakers at the Springdale shopping mall, I understood there's nothing we can't pluck the stinger from. Nothing we can't turn into a soft drink, flavor, or a t-shirt. Even serenity can become some, something horrible if you make a commercial about it using smiling, white-haired people quoting Thoreau to sell retirement homes in the Everglades where the swamp has been drained and bulldozed into a 19-hole golf course with electrified alligator barriers. You can't keep beating yourself up, Billy, I heard the therapist say on television to the teenage murderer about all those people you killed. You just have to be the best person you can be, one day at a time. And everybody in the audience claps, weeps a little, because the level of deep feeling has been touched, and they want to believe that the power of forgiveness is greater than the power of consequence or history. Dear Abby, my father is a businessman who travels. Each time he returns from one of his trips, his shoes and trousers are covered with blood. But he never forgets to bring me a nice present. Should I say something? Signed, America. I used to think I was not part of this, that I could mind my own business and get along. But that was just another song that had been taught to me since birth, whose words I was humming under my breath as I was walking through the Springdale Mall. Scene. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter. Um, so <laughs> we uh, discussed beforehand, and you, and you uh, mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the next one we're going to be doing is a little bit different. So we're going to be watching uh, Disney Pixar's WALL-E, uh, which you've never seen. I've never seen. Like I said, I think we were get, we we don't want to just focus on sort of independent type things because one of our issues that we've obviously discussed is audience. Uh, so we want we want movies of the people um, <laughs> as well as, you know, kind of subversive indie things. So, Wally. Yeah. So we, from first reform to <laughs> Wally. Um, so it'll be, you know, it's a, a more lighthearted fair than some of the other things we've looked at. But, you know, as I was telling you, since I've seen it, there there is a strange sort of darkness on the edge of town with, the, with this film um, that suggests some 
I mean, it, it still has that kind of classic hopeful ending because it's a kid's movie and you can't just tell kids we're all fucked, you know. <laughs> not to, not to uh, you know, go back too far here, but that's another thing I thought was interesting and a, and a parallel I saw in Captain Fantastic about telling the truth to children. Yeah. And, and the moment in First Reformed in the church where he's talking about the Underground Railroad where he yeah. decides, fuck it, I'm going to tell the truth to these children. Anyway. And what we found out in, in our real lives is that when children find out the truth, they get pissed off and they fight back. And that's why we have the um, climate school strikes happening all around right. the world. Right. The Sunrise Movement that I mentioned before. Um, and that's that's wonderful. You know, the... the and you know, if these revolutions or whatever are usually driven by the young, then it seems like they keep getting younger and younger. Right. You know, they just keep getting younger and younger. Um, <laughs> that's what I love about these high school That's girls. what I love about these climate activists. <laughs> I keep getting older and they keep getting younger. Um, so, you know, sometimes telling children the truth can, you know, the, if they're a little bit more aware of their world, that's a good thing. Unless, um, it, unless it's about sex. That's disgusting yeah, well, yeah, and should be avoided. Those obviously. are animal things, and only, we are humans. Only for procreation. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the next one we're going to be watching is Wally. So we'll be talking about that next time. Um, yeah, follow us on Twitter, Anthropod Tweets, at Anthropod Tweets. God damn it. Uh, Available at uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, yeah. And I guess that's pretty much... Um, five five episodes right in the can should we in have some can. sort of Noam Chomsky <laughs> every five right? celebration we'll buy a cake with five candles on it yeah